All right, if you have your Bibles, Esther chapter 5, verses 9 through 14, and uh, title this Haman's Plot Against Mordecai. And if you'll note the outline there, we're talking the theme, God's providential care for his people. And uh, chapters 4 through 7, Esther's courage, Haman's plot backfires. Well, the Jewish people and the land of Israel go together like soul and body. When the Jews refused to go into the promised land because of, you know, those big, ugly giants in the land. I don't know about ugly, but they were big, right? And because they were afraid and would not go into the land as God had told them to go into, what happened? Well, God judged that entire generation, and they all wandered around and they died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. What made the difference between Joshua and Caleb and the rest of the generation? They were men of faith. Exactly. Well, in Scripture, when the Jews are out of the land... It's a sign of God's severe judgment. They belong in the land. That is where God intends for them to be. And through Jeremiah, God had told his people that the Jews would be judged. And therefore, they would be out of the land in Babylon for 70 years. But after that, he would bring them back. And so note in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10... Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So God's going to bring him back. We don't have to wonder what the will of God is. God says, after 70 years, 70 years you're out, but then I'm going to bring you back. Uh, Not just some of you. His intention was to bring them all back to the promised land. Well, after 70 years, God brought judgment on Babylon and the Persians took over. And a Persian king by the name of Cyrus then made this decree. We read about it in 2 Chronicles 36. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So it didn't take long, it's in his first year. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. The whole kingdom... And also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So he says, I'm I'm, I'm kind of basically receiving marching orders from, from the God of Israel. You all need to go up. You need to go home. I'm making a decree. The problem was that most of the Jews did not go back to their homeland in the promised land, but rather remained in Persia. That's the setting for the book of Esther. The kingdom of Persia was massive at this point, consisting of 127 provinces. It is just amazing to see this on a map uh, as... We know the size of this place. I mean, just an incredible, massive kingdom, this Persian empire. Well, into this context of this massive empire comes a man by the name of Haman, who by heritage was of the Amalekites, the age-old cursed enemies of the Jews. 
And this man, Haman, was elevated to the second highest position in the land. Now, when you look at the size of that Persian empire, you could kind of get a big head thinking about this, right? Man, I'm somebody here. I'm, I am second in command over this massive kingdom. Very heady position. And he had the big head to go along with it. In the providence of God, there were also two Jews who quietly, secretly, found themselves in a high position in the Persian Empire. And they were Esther the queen and her cousin Mordecai, who served in the king's court in some official capacity. When Haman was exalted to second in the land, the king also gave a command to go with it that all should bow before him and pay homage. However, because he was a Jew, Mordecai refused to bow. When Haman was told this, he was enraged. And he plotted how he might seek to destroy all the Jews in this huge, massive empire. And then with the king's blessing, he drew up a law that was made which required that on a certain day the Jews should, in effect, be exterminated. Well, Mordecai then appealed to Esther. It's a dire situation. He appealed to Esther. Mordecai, cousin Mordecai, appealed to Esther to seek intervention with the king on behalf of her people, saying, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I love that line. It fits a lot of things in life. For such a time as this. I think we're here for such a time as this, actually. Uh, You know, it's a crazy time to be alive, but it's a great time to be alive because God has put us here for such a time as this. That's how I see it. Well, up to this point, neither the king nor Haman knew that the queen was Jewish. Now, there was a couple of problems with Mordecai asking Esther to go in and intercede to the king. Number one, the king hadn't asked her to see Esther for over a month. It's kind of a, a, lot of a, a little bit of an issue. Why? Well, we're not told why. It's just there's been a, a real dry spell between the king and the queen. Hadn't seen her for, hadn't called for her for a month. And second, to intrude into the court of the king called for the death penalty unless, unless he held out his golden scepter, which meant you could approach him. Well, Esther asked her people to fast for her with the assumption, most all the commentators agree here, with the, with the assumed idea of prayer as well. Fasting and prayer consistently go together in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Well, and then she said that she would, with that in mind, the fasting behind her, uh, she would go in and seek an audience with the king. And here's what she said. Uh, Esther 4.16, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, which is the capital city, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night nor day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Well, Esther at this point showed amazing courage, willing to lay it all on the line for the sake of her people, And as she went in, the king received her and offered to grant her petition. He's assuming she's there to ask something. You don't just come into the king's presence, putting your life on the line. If you don't have something important, something urgent. And so he offers to grant her petition up to half of his kingdom. Well, she deferred and asked the king and Haman to come to a banquet that she had prepared. 
Well, at the banquet, the king again asked what her petition was, and she once again put him off. And once again invited both the king and Haman to yet another banquet on the following day. Well, why the delay? Well, as we saw last time, there are many guesses, but the text doesn't definitively say. I think a good guess is she just didn't feel quite right about asking yet, and perhaps she was looking for a confirmation sign uh, to go ahead. Uh, They were bathing this in fasting, I I assume prayer, and she's looking, you know, for a confirmation sign. Perhaps that's, that's one of the guesses. Well, whether or not this was the case, a major providential sign did occur. It did happen between the first banquet and the second banquet, as recorded in chapter 6. We have background to chapter 6 tonight in our study. So what we see in 5, 19 through 14 is what is happening between the first and the second banquet, especially in relation to Haman and his plot to kill Mordecai. Well, tonight we pick the narrative up at 5.9, right after the time of the first banquet that Esther had for the king and Haman. So let's pick it up there, Esther 5.9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. I mean, this guy is flying high. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. I mean, note note the the mood swing here. He went out joyful, glad. He is so happy. Sees Mordecai over there. And he won't stand. He's not trembling. He's not showing any reverence for this great, powerful leader in the kingdom. Second, but still. And that made him so mad. Just left the banquet, right? Just left the banquet with the queen and and the king. And give Esther credit, she did not let on that she had any problem with Haman at this point. And he is thinking, I'm really in the queen's good graces. She really thinks the world of me. She's invited me to another banquet. And you got to give Esther a lot of credit. She didn't let on at all. I mean, Haman didn't have a clue what she was really thinking. Uh, She was not letting on what her real intentions were to expose him. Well, Haman left the banquet full of joy and gladness of heart. But then on his way out of the palace again, he saw Mordecai the Jew in the king's gate. And his emotions changed on a dime. And what really bothered him and filled him with indignation is that Mordecai showed him no regard. And especially when you couple that with the idea that he was a Jew. He didn't bow before him. He didn't stand. He didn't tremble at all. He wasn't even nervous. Now, earlier recall that Mordecai had been in sackcloth and ashes, as we saw in chapter 4. And it records there that he did not enter into the king's gate in this fashion because it was forbidden. Uh, Now, obviously, he had removed his sackcloth and was dressed appropriately in the king's gate. Now, evidently, he had heard that the king had received Esther into his presence with favor. We're kind of surmising here a bit. But he had been praying and fasting for three days. Now he was ready to go boldly forward, it would appear, and see what God would do. He's taken off his sackcloth and ashes. He was there for three days, but now not anymore. It's like we've bathed this in prayer, 
And this has been a good sign that she was received with favor by the king. And now he's boldly in his position uh, in the king's gate. By the way, this word trembled is a strong word denoting trembling produced by fear. It's used in various places, such as Daniel 5.19. Daniel addressing King Belshazzar says, Because of the majesty that he gave him, that is Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. Nebuchadnezzar had tremendous power. And uh, people trembled. They trembled before. They feared him is the idea. Well, you don't see any of that on the part of Mordecai towards Haman here at this point. He's, he's not trembling before this guy. I think he's, he's prayed up. And there's a boldness that comes with being prayed up. There's no fear. And uh, the man that the king himself had commanded that all bow before is not being bowed down before by Mordecai. And you have to admire a man of conviction that refuses to bow and does so boldly. I I like that about Mordecai here. I I, I like the position of being a nonconformist. And by that, I want to say a godly nonconformist. I think you can be a a wicked rebel nonconformist too. Uh, I, I don't want to go there, but, but I, 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 I like swimming against the stream. I like what I call being, a, a, what toes are called. I, I really didn't come up with the term, a holy rebel. I kind of like that. Uh, I, I hope it's not, a, a, you know, a, a bad thing. <laughs> uh, and he's doing that here. He's standing on principle. Now, he knows, and the reason I say he's staying on principle, because he knew this guy is wanting to kill all of my people, including me. He's not having any of it. He's not bowing before that guy. That'd be the last guy he's going to bow before. So he's standing on principle, refusing to bow before this arch enemy of God's people. And that was the right position. It was the right position. He was being a holy rebel, and I think that was right in this, in this case. For all of his compromises seen earlier, talking about Mordecai, you know, kind of keeping hush-hush that he's a Jew and kind of skating along with the culture and the compromise and all, and Esther as well. For all of that, at this point, Mordecai does stand for what's right, and so did Esther, and that is commendable. I kind of come down on him hard earlier. I want to commend him here at this point. This is commendable. Also note that while Haman looked really big and strong behind his government position, I mean, he was the man. But in person now, before Mordecai, as he's headed out, he looks over there, and Mordecai won't give him any respect. He didn't have the guts to go over there and challenge Mordecai, did he? No, he didn't. Uh, and I think if he would have, Mordecai, there might have been, uh, it might have been interesting. I don't think Mordecai was in a position to just say, you know, okay, buddy, you know. <laughs> uh, no, they might have had it out right there. And I think, uh, I see Haman as kind of a yellow guy. I mean, he, he, was, uh, he was hiding kind of behind his position. But personally, he was a coward, I think. Uh, Mordecai, on the other hand, uh, seemed uh, to have everything going against him. And yet he stood strong in his convictions, which were rooted in God at this point, seems to me. The whole issue is uh, the extermination of the people of God, and he's taking a stand there. Verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Hannah was full of self-joy. Haman, that is. Haman was full of self-joy with one dark cloud. The dark cloud of Mordecai. 
Nevertheless, he restrained himself. He goes home, calls for his friends, his wife, to celebrate his good fortune. I mean, after all, life is really going well at this point. He's like, uh, won the lottery. And uh, after all, it, it was all about him, or so he thought. Verse 11, listen, listen. If you don't think it was all about him and his mind, just listen to the text. Verse 11, then Haman told them of his great riches. Let me tell you, folks, how much money I got. I'm filthy, rich. He's going on. He told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him. I got promoted. Wow. And this and this and this. And how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. You know what? Haman loved to talk about himself. His whole life and being was about self, it seems to me. And you know what my bet is? I, my bet is that secretly, even his friends tired of hearing about all of this all the time. But you know what? When you are second in command of an empire the size of Persia at this point, they're probably never going to say that out loud, right? After all, I'm kind of close to the power center here, close to the guy second in command. And so I'm sure they listened on that basis. But he went on and on about his great riches, his big family. In chapter 9, we see that he had 10 children. He bragged on how the king had promoted him, put him in an advanced position over all the other officials and servants of the king. He went on and on ad, ad nauseum. And it was all about self. Man, he's about self. Sort of reminds me of the parable Jesus told about the rich man who was so self-absorbed with everything that he had, carrying on about everything he had. And, and uh, then Jesus ended the parable with this application, Luke chapter 12, verse 20, 21. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. You're going to die tonight. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is, he, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Just like the rich fool who bragged on all that he had, not knowing that he would die that night. So Haman is carrying on like this good fortune that has come to him is going to go on for as far as he can see, not knowing what a difference a day can bring forth. This was about to change overnight, as we will see as we get into chapter 6. Well, life is like that. We don't know what a day will bring forth. Circumstances can change overnight. Better invest in God. Better invest in eternal values. Nothing here is certain. Yet human pride tends to think in the moment. It tends to think about self and not God. And pride is a blinding thing. Uh, and frankly, it's a killer, as we will see in our, in our study. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That was certainly true of Haman. Verse 12, moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. <laughs> oh, my goodness. On top of all of his riches, on top of all of his children, on top of his advanced position, on top of all this, the queen really likes him. He's got special favor going with the queen. I mean, he was at the banquet, just him and the king. And guess what? She's having another party tomorrow. And guess who's going to the party? It's me. Hey, they're all high-fiving. You the man. You the man. Whoa, you're going to the party with the queen. 
and the king. Wow. Uh, By the way, how's this for dropping the name? Uh, He bragged on how the queen in all of her glory had invited him, no one but him, and the king to a special banquet on the morrow. And he's so enamored with this, he states it twice here in in this one verse. He's really feeling good about himself. I mean, I'm really feeling good. Everything is going his way. But there's one thing, one cloud in his life that really bugs him. John Whitcomb says, although Esther's attendants knew of her relation to Mordecai, Haman obviously did not. This ignorance of one vital fact proved in God's perfect providence and justice to be his undoing. Yep, that true. Verse 13. In spite of all that he had, he says, verse 13, yet all this avails me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. The thing that ate at him was seeing Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate and showing him no respect. In fact, he said all these other status symbols in his life meant nothing to him as long as Mordecai was on the scene. I mean, this, this one guy is really getting to him. Got all this other stuff, but this one guy can't stand. And he specifically noted Mordecai the Jew. Had a real deep-seated hatred for the Jews in general, as we have noted. He's called for a certain day when they're all going to be wiped out. But of all those Jews that he couldn't stand, there's one that he really detests in particular. Mordecai. What we have here is an expression of, of hatred, what the Bible, I think, calls, what would the, what would the word be? This, this type of hatred that wants somebody destroyed. Malice is the word. Malice. Uh, Bible, or just not even Bible, just dictionary, definition of malice. Desire to inflict injury, harm, or suffering on another, either because of a hostile impulse or out of deep-seated meanness, the malice in spite of a, of a lifelong enemy. That's the sense. And what we see in Haman is a, is a terrible case of malice. Malice is a terrible thing. Uh, Warren Wearsby says, Malice is, a, is that deep-seated hatred that brings delight if our enemy suffers pain, Uh, If our enemy succeeds, the light of our enemy suffers pain if he succeeds. Malice can never forgive. It must always take revenge. That's the idea of malice. I really want bad things to happen to that person. Now, you know something? Uh, We want to talk a little application here. Even Christians who still have the flesh, and we do, are warned against the leaven of malice. Leaven starts small, but it grows as a cancer, and it can become a killer. Uh, Note these texts in the New Testament that we see. This is all New Testament. This is where we live, under the New Covenant, under the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5.8, let us keep the feast. And the Christian life is, is a celebration. But let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. <clears throat> and then finally, 1 Peter 2.1, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. So we are told again and again, uh, put aside 
all malice. Uh, say, it's always a wonderful thing when you go to sleep at night and say, <clears throat> all is well with, with, with me and God and whatever's out here, whatever's happened today, I just let it all go. No malice. J. Vernon McGee says, someone has said that you can always tell the size of a man by the things that irritate him. <laughs> if little things irritate him, he's a little man. If it takes big things to irritate him, he's a big man. There's probably some truth in that. You, you understand the, the spirit of which he speaks there. But let's put it in terms of spirit-filled versus flesh-filled. The flesh is all about hatred and malice, and this is what defines unbelievers. But it is not to define us as believers. Instead, we are to be led by the Spirit and to yield to the Spirit, with the result being the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Titus 3, verse 3 says, This is how we used to live. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This is how the world carries on. This is how unbelievers carry on. I mean, they live in drama, the drama of malice. That's how we used to live, but we're not to live there anymore. In short, don't be a Haman. Don't be a Haman. And who names their kid Haman, by the way? It's like Judas. Uh, who are your sons? Well, I got Judas and Haman over here. <laughs> no. Uh, we all recognize the ugliness of Haman on the, on the pages of Scripture. But how sad it is when it happens in the lives of true believers, and it can happen. That is why we are warned and commanded that it must not happen. We are not to live this way. And I speak to myself first and foremost. Somebody does you bad, it's real easy to kind of battle thoughts like, you know, not a large truck, maybe just a little truck. <laughs> no, we, we don't even want to go there. Verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Hey, we got an idea. That's my interjection. Uh, let a gallows be made, 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily, merrily with the king to the banquet. Isn't that crazy? Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. Oh, very good. That's a great idea. Why didn't I think of it? After all, think about who I am for a moment here. Why didn't I come up with this idea? It's such a good idea. The thing pleased Haman. And so he had the gallows made. In trying to console Haman, I've got this one, one blocked in his life here. Everything else is swimmingly. But there's this one guy. I hate the guy. <laughs> they said, well, I, we got an idea. They suggested that a gallows be made 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet high. That's a pretty high gallows. I don't know how high the ceiling here is. How high is it? 25 feet? Jason, you measured this, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. So let's go three times higher than this. That would be pretty high, right? All the neighbors could see it, right? Really high. Now, commentators are not sure whether the gallows here signify death by hanging or impalement. doesn't really matter. Uh, either way, the idea was that the dead body of Mordecai would be strung up 75 feet in the air for all to see. That will show everybody just how great Haman is. 
And that absolutely no one can mess with him. And no one better diss him after all the king had made the command that everybody's to bow before him. You know, we don't know what it looked like. But it was high, 75 feet. Again, we don't know the specifics of what was involved in building these gallows. Some suggest it was built on, a, on top of a high wall already in place. Uh, so not a lot of building was required. They did this in a day, so it evidently was a context. It didn't require a lot. Uh, others think perhaps it was fastened to uh, the top of a very tall tree. Uh, we're not told the specifics, only that it was to be 75 feet high so all could see. And the plan was that after the gallows were, were built that day, then early the next morning, Amon, you know, Haman... That, that, that one that had the most favored position with the king, he would go in to see the king and make a little suggestion that Mordecai be hanged on those gallows. You know, after all, I mean, this Jew had no regard for him, not even keeping the king's command. And, of course, the presumption is that with this kind of pull that Haman had, after all, the king would go along with it. I mean, king goes along with most everything else that Haman suggests. And then in all their depravity, they said, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. That's some kind of hard humanity here. They had no regard for the sacredness of human life, certainly not that of a Jew. And Haman heartily approved of this murderous plot. It pleased him. And so he ordered the gallows to be made immediately. Now, how ruthless to plot a political assassination so that he can then enjoy the banquet without being distracted by this bothersome person. That speaks of a deep level of depravity. And it appealed to Haman. He wasn't saying, oh, man, that's a little far. No, no, no. That's a good idea. Let's get rid of him. His wife and his friends coached him. And again, this kind of smacks of personal weakness, I think, on the part of Haman. It also echoes another wicked wife in the Old Testament by the name of Jezebel. Recall her husband Ahab, one of the vineyard of Naboth, who didn't want to sell it. So wicked Jezebel, the wife suggested to her husband Ahab about a plot to have Naboth killed, which Ahab then carried through on. But they forgot about one thing, and that is that God saw it all. And God had a message for Ahab through his prophet Elijah. Remember there, 2 Kings chapter 21, you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. But here's where I want to go with this tonight. In the providence of God, and we're emphasizing providence in this book. In the providence of God, Mordecai was spared. I mean, this, everything is going swimmingly Haman's way, but then we got a little change of direction in the middle of the night. The king couldn't sleep, and he begins to read in the old archives there. Well, he must have really had a problem with insomnia. You get those out. And so he begins to read, and he starts reading good things about Mordecai and how Mordecai had saved his life. And, you know, by the time morning comes, you know what the king thought? I need to promote Mordecai. So here comes Haman. Hey, I got an idea. Well, boy, it's amazing how things can change in the course of a night. And they did here. But here's my 
Here's my deal. Yeah, wonderful for Mordecai. But what about Naboth? What about Naboth? Was the providence of God not with him? I mean, he died. Ahab had his way, killed him. What about him? You say, well, providence just wasn't working for Naboth. You know, it's interesting. When you think about life, there's a lot of things we don't understand. Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith chapter, I've talked about this a lot, talks about those who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. I like that. Man, we're on a roll here. I kind of like living right in those verses. Those are my verses, verses 33 through 35a. But what about verses 35b and on? Others, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. And the text goes on to say that all these people were people of faith. They were all people of faith. You can't say, well, Naboth just didn't have the kind of faith that Mordecai had. Nah, that's not it. Sometimes in the providence of God, he spares our life. And sometimes in the providence of God, you might not see it that way, but it's still providence. He's still in charge of all the details. In the providence of God, he takes us home. You say, well, that's a terrible outcome. Really? To die is gain after all, isn't it? Yeah. In the sovereignty of God, it's all good. You know how I know this? Well, well, it's right there, right? You know the verse, right? Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And this is stated just a few verses before verse 36, which says, as it is written for your sake, we are killed all the day long. Well, how does that jive with what I just read in verse 28? It does. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, even in death, you can be a conqueror, more than a conqueror. We just can't quite see the other side. But once we get there, we'll say, it's all good. It's all good to the glory of God. This is how God had chosen to use me for such a time as this, whether by life or by death, that Christ would be magnified in my body, as Paul says. I, I don't choose that. You don't choose that. It's in God's hands. And God being God, he can decide how he wants to use us. Bible knowledge commentary. As the events unfold, the reader is reminded of seemingly insignificant or forgotten events that the skillful narrator had previously mentioned, but had not highlighted. God was sovereignly at work even behind such a hateful act as building a gallows. Boy, that's true as we will see next time. John Whitcomb says, The suspense has now reached the ultimate. Esther has not yet spoken to the king about the pogrom, that is the plan uh, to wipe out the Jews. The king still does not know Mordecai saved his life, right? And now a gallows has been set up for Mordecai. Never have things looked worse. That's true right here. If you're Mordecai, things are not looking good. But in the providence of God, he was about to make some moves 
that changed everything. And you know, it is amazing how God, through just one little night of insomnia, can change the dynamics of the whole narrative. And that's what happened here. It was the providence of God at work on behalf of his people for his glory. And even though it came out for a very favorable outcome in this situation with Mordecai and and the Jews in this situation, God also uses other situations where he allows his people to die for him. Been many martyrs through the church age. You know, you you think about uh, the apostle Peter. He's He's in prison, right? Herod wants to have him what? Killed. Angel in the middle of the night. Get up, Peter. We're breaking out of this place. It's an angel break. You know, I'm here to to get you out. But you know what happened at the end of Peter's life? Well, he was crucified, the tradition says, upside down. So it didn't always work out. God's plan, whatever that is, as Paul would say, whether by life or by death, that Christ would be magnified in my body. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. We're not our own, whatever his purpose is. The providence of God is good. And all things do work together for good. They're not all seemingly in good in and of themselves, but they have a big picture that they're working together uh, good for. And all things do work together for good for those that love God. Well, we'll get to the, uh, the divine uh, providential interruption next time in chapter 6. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Let's have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer tonight.